You're listening to Resonating with Emmett O'Malley. Hey everybody, you're welcome along to Resonating with Emmett O'Malley. I hope you're doing well, wherever you are, wherever you're listening to this. Nice to see and feel a bit of springtime blooming around the place. Things are a little less apocalyptic, I'm finding this week. A bit of sunshine, where I am anyway, and a bit of nature kicking into play again. Which is a little opposite to the isolation foreboding feeling that's been around for quite a while so that's pretty nice i appreciate you nature thank you nature please support this podcast by subscribing at patreon.com slash emmett o'malley where you will receive over two and a half years of exclusive music and videos it's the best way to support the show also i have a weekly private podcast on patreon which is a lot of fun, so be sure to check that out. So it's patreon.com slash Emmett O'Malley. That's E-M-M-E-T O'Malley. Yes, I didn't have to spell the second half of my name. Just assume you're going to get that bit. You might do an, uh, you might do M-A-L-L-Y or leave out the O or just kind of get it wrong on purpose. Like, I, like oh, I, I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. Find it. Find it. Sign up on Patreon. It's it's really good. There's loads of... Well, it's good if, if you like what's there, I guess. But loads of music, loads of videos. It's all there. It's all there for the taking, for the listening, for the watching. Actor and comedian Phil Nickel is on the show today. I experienced Phil. That's how I can say it. I experienced him for the first time when I saw him performing on a show called The Lounge. I think it was called on Irish TV years and years ago i'd say this was 2000 something like that and i was still in school but it was one of these moments where i saw someone and it changed the molecules in me his energy this kind of out and out like high speed verbal delivery the physical comedy the musical comedy it's just like an explosion on stage and i just remember at the time thinking i want to do that i need to do that how do i do that that is it because in the school at the time at 17 trying to figure out what i'm going to do with my life and all these ideas floating around and for some reason you had to have all the answers because and there's a logical reason for that because at 17 of course your brain is fully developed at 17 and that's the best possible time all the wisdom gained at that point that's the best possible time to know exactly what to do for the rest of your life so that makes a lot of sense anyway i didn't have a clue but seeing phil on tv yeah it just lifted me up it's these kind of performers these kinds of artists other comedy people at the time in ireland who did that for me were john kenny and pat short together called dunbelievables if you haven't heard of them they're a big irish act Back in the 90s, but it's D, apostrophe, unbelievables, done believables. Incredible, incredible stuff. It was just, you know, well-written, great characters. I loved anything that just raised things out of like the normal day-to-day kind of, oh, this is my life and blah, blah, blah. I just love, boom, like you're in a parallel universe. That's what I 
I loved and I wanted to do. And that's kind of the way people like Phil, who I speak to on this episode, that's what they did to me. There's something about the way people laugh as well when they're watching Phil Nickel or comedy of the style that I'm talking about. I'd mentioned Unbelievables again, or I'd say the classic examples would be people like Robin Williams or Billy Connolly. It's kind of high energy, high speed thinking, rapid delivery, real stage presence, you know, just capturing everybody in the palm of their hand while they're on stage. It's the kind of laughter, though, that's visceral. It's really just from the gut. It's physical. It doesn't go through some kind of intellectual process in in the audience. It's just like straight, direct. That's a gift. Like that's just a great gift. And it's something that I was always just fascinated by. And when I started doing comedy about a year later, when I was 18, that's the kind of thing I chased. And I quickly realized it's the hardest kind of comedy to do. But still the only kind of comedy I wanted to do, the only thing I wanted to try. You literally live and die in the moment. And like comedies like that anyway, but I think there's something about the tightrope walk of just that full explosion comedy, I guess. It can always just go either way. That was my experience. It's probably not the same for other people, but it was really, it felt like always like high risk, high stakes. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe, give the show a rating, as many stars as you can, and review. That helps a lot. And press follow on Spotify, subscribe on YouTube, and follow me on all the social media places, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, etc., etc., all at Emmett O'Malley Music. I don't do any um, dancing or... uh, I don't even check TikTok, to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I have it because... I was told it's uh, something to have, but uh, yeah, let's see. Just pop along, say hello anyway. Definitely on Instagram, Facebook, Emmett O'Malley Music, on YouTube as well, Emmett O'Malley Music, and I'll keep you updated on all the upcoming episodes. If you need to email the show and say hello as well, you can say hello at info at emmettomalley.com. Anyway, I was delighted to have had a chance to talk to Phil on here. He's done some great things in his career from Corky and the Juice Pigs in the early days to winning the prestigious Perrier Award, well, it was called the If Comedy Award at the time, in Edinburgh in 2006. At the moment, Phil is part of the cast of the musical Everybody's Talking About Jamie, which will hopefully be reopening at some stage later in the year in the West End when it's safe to do so, so keep an eye out for that. So here is my chat with the lovely, super talented Phil Nichol. You know, I'm a classic story of went to many different schools, moved many times, got bullied a lot, was too small for my age, had a lisp and a stutter, moved from Scotland to Canada, and then another nine different schools between before I became, before I could speak properly at age 11. And then uh, at age 12, I saw a Shakespearean play and went and thought, I that's what I want to do, which is completely insane for a kid that can't speak properly and that no one listens to. And But I think it's a classic story. 
Um, so that I kind of fell into the comedy while I was at acting school, and while I and and while I was growing up, I had an older brother, Andrew. Um, I still I still have him, but he he was uh, a brilliant musician, just naturally gifted. He could pick up an instrument, and at the end of the night, play you a tune on it, and he could sing, and he you know and he was very very clever. And so I really looked up to him as you do big brothers. And when I was eight, my parents bought me a guitar for Christmas. Uh, like a cheap old second-hand guitar, and my brother took a snatch it off me and then learned how to play it and then hand, would play things. You know, he's six years older than me, so he's like, uh, you know, 14. He'd play me a song and then hand it back to me, and I'd go, mm, my fingers aren't big enough. So that's kind of how music started for me. Um, we went to church. We were, my parents are uh, sort of devout, born-again Christians in the Brethren faith. I've written loads of material about it. I'm not. Hello. Um, mm. But, but but of course, it meant that we were going to church four or five times a week, singing at all of it and singing hymns and things. So so music and stuff like that has always just been in part around me. And my brother always had loads of instruments in his room. Um, but I've never thought of myself as being a musician and, you know, Never, it's not. It's just something that accompanied the performance, the acting bit of it. So when I fell into comedy, I went to university and I met this, to the other lads from my comedy act, which was called Corky and the Juice Pigs, which is like a Canadian comedy trio. Yeah. We one of our one of our things was to sit around and get like you know smoke hashish off the off the stove and get high as cheaply as possible and then get the guitars out and just make each other laugh and there was a there was a we had a back room in in the we stayed in a university house which had like three of us and two uh pot dealers who were ex-students and they they had a band called daisy's hot butt spots which was like a punk band Uh, uh, and um, uh, Daisy was one of their sheepdogs who had had this these um, um, skin growth on its behind and had shaved its backside. So <laughs> Daisy's hot butt spots, and it was kind of it, we we went to university across the river from Detroit, so it was in the the Jack White era of like punk. I mean, Detroit had an amazing punk music scene at that point. So right. I was all kind of caught up in that at university. That was the bands that were coming through the university were, you know, we had a party at the, the Red Hot Chili Peppers ended up on a couch and uh, and uh, the first I saw the Violent Femmes for the first time and in, in with, you know, like 70 people and and so and so music for me when I left the left home and moved away from going to church, I really got into punk music and and uh, and two tone music and scone stuff. And so. That that kind of all melded together at university when I met the other two guys in in a in a comedy music act because I wasn't good enough to play music properly but I loved you know playing really fast and really loud uh, and so that kind of became the style of Corky and the Juice Pigs and when we left university I went into a Shakespearean play and on the Mondays we had the Mondays off we were we went down to the Yuck Yucks Comedy Club in Toronto uh, to the amateur night. Uh, to the open spot night and after the first one we did so well they asked us to come back the next week and after the second one we did so well the third week they made us the headline act the final amateur act and on the fourth one mark breslin from yuck yuck showed up and signed us had a meeting with us the next day and gave us our first full feature spot and within two years we were on the um the dudley moore comedy club special which was on abc television hosted by dudley moore so that was that it was kind of all those things came together 
accidentally really and music it was just always in there somehow so yeah yeah no yeah. I, I hear you and i was listening to some corky in the juice bigs this morning actually uh getting myself uh, <laughs> uh ready for this and yeah man i i remember listening to those songs years ago you used to play a couple of them uh live uh, just solo as well um a few standout ones obviously um eskimo but um dolphin boy <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think that's my that's my uh, favorite and i hadn't heard the uh janitor um it's like a neil young um a chorus of neil young's the song janitor yes um it's, it's we, we just incredible we just i think i think we were we got to put we love neil young we've we've seen him all different times and um you know he's he's leg, he's he's a folk canadian folk legend you know so mm-hmm. um and he's also fun to do his voice hey neil hey neil <laughs> how's it going man you know so we just um, and uh, and we just thought he's always he always looked like the there's always a creepy janitor in every every school i don't know what they call them in britain but, they, but there's you know he's the guy that lives down by the furnace so we just thought <laughs> yeah. we thought if neil young hadn't been the folk canadian folk legend he may have end, well end up being a janitor and, yeah. and in a sense he is a caretaker of our hearts emmett <laughs> yeah yeah he, so. he he is um he is like um it's in he's an irresistible character though you know not, not to do something about though neil young because like he is um he is he has that little bit of um just com- he's completely mental it seems as, <laughs> as well as being like this amazing artist like i saw him um a couple of years ago playing in hyde park yeah you know in in, in the thing and uh he <laughs> i think it's just whatever mood you get him in really is the thing but this like he, like at one point he just started having a major strop and uh, there was a lot of people he came out and did his acoustic set you know he did like heart of gold and uh all the kind of um harvest kind of stuff yeah uh did three or four or five songs and people kind of wanted more of it and uh he called the crowd a bunch of bastards and he went into um uh, half an hour guitar solo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really crazy horse. So he's just kind of like, "Fuck you, guys." <laughs> there was there was a concert in Hamilton, Ontario, which is where Greg Neal from the Juice Pigs uh, lived, and he had on his crazy horse. They did a re- reunited crazy horse tour. Crazy horse was when Neil Young was into really heavy rock, and they did a show. They had their support act was a Sonic Youth, you know, and I mean they're phenomenal. She's phenomenal. And they saw the the crowd that go to see Neil Young in Canada tend to be old hippie dudes, like like you know, like Easy Riders and stuff like that, and and people that are kind of into flower power and you know, like into you know, into Earth rights and things. And uh, so Sonic Youth wasn't doing it for them at all, and they were being getting booed, and the people were throwing like. You know, the, Hamilton's kind of like where you probably ACDC would rock the place out, right? But Sonic Youth, mm-hmm. no. So they were throwing stuff and yelling at them. So Sonic Youth just, what I've got about four or five songs in, just went, oh, it's fuck this, man. And they, the guy just, just swearing at them, going, fuck you, fuck your mother. And then they and then they turn, ter, oh, turned around, just started doing that very thing. They just started playing like really loud, grungy guitar solos and just like um, Sonic Youth Meth. And then instead of finishing, what they did is they got the f- uh, feedback going on all their guitars and they put their guitars on top of the amplifiers 
and turned them all, turned everything up. You could see them turn all everything up till full on all the squelch and reverb, delay, chorus, everything. Put their guitars on top while the drummer just like smacking and kicking the drums over, and then left. And what? Well, so the room was like, like people were holding their ears, screaming, nah. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. they and they walked off until and the sound guy running. You could see a sound guy running to the the, the main desk to get the sound down because obviously they had their own mixing guys who just turned who pushed all the levels straight up. The, the, this, this was like a hockey stadium, so it was like really echoey and it was unbelievable. And then the crowd just, the sound came down. The crowd was like silenced. They were so deafened, they were silent. And then they started booing. And then Neil Young came out and just went, hey guys, they're, they're friends of mine. <laughs> and I've, been on, I've been on tour with them. So, um, and, and then and did a really short set. Oh and kind, God! And kind of went, I, I just fuck, fuck you. just the the contrast of that, like you know the the feedback and the and the the noise and the basically like um like we're not here for you <laughs> basically, <laughs> and then Neil Young quietly coming out making a little statement. I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I once had that with uh, I I had a similar experience, much smaller level. I was with Rod Gilbert, who's quite a well-known Welsh comic. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, we were doing Edinburgh warm-ups at the Monkey Barrel, not the Monkey Barrel, the, uh, um, what's it called? Um, oh, the Monkey Club, I, it's in a place in Camden. So we, I'd gone on with my new act called Bobby Spade, which was a beat poet, a really misogynistic, horrible beat poet in a white suit. And the show was, he was a ghost and he was in purgatory and he was forced to speak all of the poems about his mother that he had written throughout his life. And he had, had a little jazz band with us. And um, I went on and this audience were there to see, the place was packed for people to see Rod Gilbert just as his career was taking off. And of course they hated me. They didn't get it, they didn't understand it, it was artsy and, and, and I, at any time I could have changed gear and done my regular act and gone into it and won them over, but I, it wasn't what I was there for. And I had a band with me and we were trying to rehearse uh, this these songs for the Edinburgh Festival. So mm. they pretty much booed me off and I pretty much had the same experience. I didn't blast them with feedback, but I, I told them where they can stick their, you know, yeah. show. And then Rod went on and just went, I was backstage, I was in tears. I was that, that upset about it. And the the band were going, it's okay, Phil, don't worry about it. I was like, yeah, but this is bullshit, you know. And then Rod went on and, and, and said to them, he just went, you know, you guys are, I know you're here to see me, but you guys are idiots. That, uh, and and he he said that you, that was that's one of the best comedians that I know, and he's a friend of mine. And you've you booed him off, and I think you're you're, just, you're insulting, and you're and you're rude, and you're insane. And then he continued. I left at that point. Mm, I yeah. could, I, could, I couldn't be in the room. I couldn't be. In the, I snuck out through the kitchen. It's embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. I mean, that's that's after that was that was in two thousand and nine. So I mean, that's after I had uh, you know been nominated and won the Perry and all that stuff. So the fact it can still happen to you is is exceptional. Yeah, that's the thing that I um like I, I remember so clearly about uh when I was doing stand up, um the uh it's like night and day, like one gig after the next, you know, like the day after I I remember I had like probably my my best ever um gig one night where it was like one of those ones where I could see the crowd kind of swaying, like, you know, with laughter, you know, mm. and a huge crowd, really lucky night uh, with the lineup. And I was like, yes, I'm going to be doing this for the rest of my life, you know. Mm. And the next day it was like the exact same set. 
and people just literally waiting for me to get off <laughs> you know? right, J- right just sitting like it, it was like it, it's a obviously that's the learning process with the whole thing uh as well but one thing that that came up there when you were when you were chatting about that was uh um a piece of advice someone gave me kind of like at the start of that whole journey as well was uh, a, a another um, comedian just came up to me after a gig and said, um, I think you're, you're doing it for them. Like as in the audience, you're, you're trying too hard. It's like, it's like you need to do it for you. Um. And, uh, this, this kind of thing, which was a really, really interesting little adjustment for me mentally. But then it's like, because it was, I was also trying to get laughs. It's a funny balance, isn't it? Well, I, I actually uh, completely feel the other way about that. Mm. I, 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 I'm, you know, I do some mentoring for younger comics, and I direct people and stuff now. And I, I don't think of myself as being good at that. Just to to caveat it, I'm not. It's something that I do because I feel as an older performer, some of the things that older people have said to me, like that guy saying to you, he's trying to help you get over, get through uh, whatever problems he saw you were having. But I think his advice was wrong. And I and I would say there are really, it, to generalize, two types of comedians. Uh, and there's a comedian, and we kind of, you know, uh, vacillate between the two w- there's the comedians who are up on stage for themselves and it's about them it's all about you are there gathered to look at me um and then there's the comedians and the performers and i like to i try to keep myself on this side of it are the comedians that are there on stage for the audience for you i want to entertain you and i'm there to uh, you know educate or entertain or enlighten or inspire the audience and so you've got this incredible ego working you've got this incredible narcissism that most Mm. most performers and comedians it's distilled into one person because you can't share it with your drummer um and it and it's if if that becomes the only if that becomes if you start to think they're here they're only here because of me it's a really really short and rough road to go down whereas the idea that you're there to uh for them and that you should be humbled and uh, you know you see you see sort of this um sort of what it, i want to call it elitism but you want you know p- people that are high functioning in the arts world always see them and doing speeches always saying i'm so humbled by everything and i used to mock them and go uh, yeah humbled yeah right you know you're you're al pacino or whatever but then you realize no i think if you really get if you're really in tune with what you're supposed to be doing as an artist you should be constantly aware uh of the fact that you're doing it for other for the audience now that doesn't mean that the creative side of it doesn't have to solely come out of you and be that it's you know you're not trying to second guess what they want you have to give them what you are if that makes sense you've got to you've got to bear yourself to them and be as open and honest especially as comedians whether you're doing something surreal or something very heartfelt and true it still has to come from you and it has to feel really honest or they sense the audience sense it but i would say that the best thing you could do as a comedian is to remember 
always remember to respect the audience and that you're there for them first. So if you're not having a good set and you are starting to bomb, the worst thing you can do is turn on them and go, fuck you, I'm better than you. Do you know how much money I make? I just think it's, I think it's, um, it's appalling to do that. It's, it's not fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. Man, I, I couldn't agree with you more there, you know, and uh, I, oh, it, ne- it never sat with me, the idea of like, as in, uh, like, w- the most important thing about this is uh, me and like, kind of my little world, let's say. But I think maybe what I got out of it was, it also seems um, like, like you touched on there as well. Uh, problematic to get into a habit of kind of people pleasing with an audience as well because like yeah. like that kind of thing like I'm there primarily to to give and to entertain and to to do my bit like that's how I feel about music as well like I'm I'm bringing what I'm bringing and I'm going to put on a good show let's say well but, um, mm. I- if I sacrifice my stuff completely I, I'm just kind of you know I I don't have anything. Well, I'm I'm open to this conversation because <clears throat> because I, I I think it's you know I guess I go back and forth between it, but if you to use music as it is an analogy, I think you have to separate the the forms as well because if you watch um, some Charles Bukowski, there's some uh, go on YouTube and put up Charles Bukowski live, and there's like 35 minute, 40 minute long uh, video uh, filmed uh, Super 8 films of him. And he just despised the audience, or pretended to, and drink wine and get drunk and, be, and and offer people out for fights and stuff. And the place would be packed, rammed with hecklers. And 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 he, he was the he's the funniest heckler put down um, person that I've ever seen. He's better than any comedian I've ever seen because he did not give a shit and he acted like he didn't give a shit. And if he wanted to sit there and drink a, a bottle of wine and smoke cigarettes and not say anything, he would. And and it's inspiring to watch that. But then again, he wrote. Poems and he wrote them he write poems late at night I'm assuming or whenever he wrote them you know in you imagine late at night in drunk after a punch-up and you know that's what he was presenting comedians on the other hand or musicians on the other hand uh, for the most part are trying to uh, um, lighten the load of the audience and yeah. um, it's it's I, I don't like comedy as a, a gladiator sport and but some comedians that's where they're that's where they come from at the same time I love provoking an audience and I love I, I mean I don't shy away from hecklers um, yeah. but I but I but I try and re- keep in my mind that i'm i'm there for the for the audience they're i'm they're make they've they've made the audience has made my life uh feel like a charmed life because they keep showing up to see this comedy and not me particularly but they see any comedy they just like to go out and see comedy and we should never we should remember their part in it and yeah. and respect them for it. That said, you can get in front of like a group of you know a hundred squatties who are total total jerks and trying to destroy you and throw you off and do all that stuff. But yeah, it's that's kind of fun, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, you have to you have to imagine what it would be like to be them, you know. Yeah, you know, it might be something that it might be part of what I was touching on at the start when I like first saw you when I mentioned like the inspiration because it was like. I I saw you 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 gave so much basically on st- on stage you know uh, and still do but I mean when in that moment uh, 
that gave so much in terms of energy, commitment, and like full-on entertainment. I think that was like maybe the distinction. You know, it stood out basically. It's it's it stood out compared to, I th what I think, what I meant by the kind of clever thing was kind of maybe a bit like. Um, the facade of cleverness you know it's, it's a very yeah. easy character to play you yes know? It's, yeah it's an e yeah um, well well the, well the juice pigs the corky and the juice pigs and the sense of humor we developed with there was a small group of us there was more than just the three of us there was about seven or eight uh, guys and, and girls um who all hung out together at the, at this uh at the school of dramatic art and and we used to Play improv, play improv games with each other, even if we're in the pub, just like just messing about. I think mm. most comedians and most sketch troops and stuff probably have a similar similar story where you find people that you 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 kind of second you can second guess where they're going with stuff. And what we were trying to do, constantly do is surprise each other and make each other laugh. So therefore, the boundaries of taste were pushed, and the boundaries of of, of um, words were pushed and our our boundaries of our literary sense were pushed and we try to surprise each other in all different ways and play uh, we we didn't think of this at the time it's not like we sat down like right let's play a game it's just that I realized now we used to just sit and talk rubbish and talk nonsense and and um, sometimes some really wonderfully warped and weird ideas would come out of it we mm. we also were in an era when audiences enjoyed being pushed and provoked i don't think that i think that's one of the big changes that's happened over the last 10 years 15 mm. years as audiences are now as it's become more mainstream we're now getting having much more careful of what we say and do uh because the aud audiences are revolting but where when i was sort of doing comedy uh doug stanhope is one of the purveyors of it you would just push an audience yeah. to to its limit and that includes his own audience so once you started developing that it really it, you know uh, became a became a, sh a shock and awe tactic to try and provoke an audience so you had to be clever in a different way you had to be clever in a way you can't just be rude you can't just be offensive you had to be clever and there had to be had to be a twisted target so <clears throat> to mm. to you to use the the only gay eskimo or the eskimo song as an example it made us laugh because it was wrong on a, it was very wrong on so many levels that you had to you had to accept that we knew that and therefore that that's where the humor came from is as these is is that we were being so so wrong that it was right or in in britain there would be you know things like bottom was like that from that era you know mm. where you, you you know they're it's wrong and they say just but they go down that fine line and they never quite tip over into absolute um um offensiveness because it's or it is if it's so offensive that you just accept that that it's it's done for fun and um, the league of gentlemen were probably the last on the last cusp of that sort of that sense of humor and even they're being pulled up now you know with the modern world and on, on what was offensive what's actually offensive and things that are offensive but they were purposely being offensive uh because they with knowing that we're smart enough to know that they knew what they were doing and therefore and therefore uh it made it funny and acceptable that's that i mean that's a theory anyway yeah um i get you um but i think like a, 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 so much to do with intention as well and that context gets lost so easily like as in 
when you see that stuff like like the Eskimo song or whatever you, you kind of know the intention is fun and it's good and like um it obviously it can, it's open to interpretation but um we are living in an age for example as well um where uh just on the BBC like iPlayer the last day or like the news player actually um I played a video and it had a warning on it saying um uh this uh video uh has offensive scenes in it and it's like they've all actually it didn't say that some viewers may find this offensive they've already decided <laughs> like my reaction you know like uh, i think it, it's 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 too blurry at the moment i think well know? i I, <coughs> I mean that's it, it it is a huge topic i wonder if by telling people that it's offensive if you're <coughs> if that doesn't actually make it offensive um, you know, by saying that it's offensive, then you're admitting it's offensive. Then why are you showing it? Um, and and then so you're you're kind of in you've got your foot in two camps there. You're saying that it's okay to it's okay to offend you, but we have to warn you that we're going to do it first. And um, you know, you have the choice. I guess what they're trying to do is remove the ability for people to complain after the fact, which is to me that's even more that's. That's disgusting. That's like that's like saying I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do, and if you don't want to watch it, turn away now, um, <clears throat> so you can't complain about it later. Well, we did tell you, and I, I, I think <laughs> we that, told I, you so. We told you it was going to be offensive. Well, well that's, I don't know. It's yeah. it's, a, it's a bit different than going back through going back through cultural catalog and saying we can't. You know, there's uh, Shylock in Shakespeare's. Uh, famous play is an offense to to jewish people without without considering the time and place but it, it, i'm not jewish so it, it's hard it would be hard for me to have that discussion uh with someone who is um mm. you know it because i i'm not going to deny that their their feelings about it however they are they they may just be one person you you know it's that we're in that world where you, you might find the you know jewish actors who have played the part and i'm thinking um, Al Pacino or someone like that, and is he Jewish? I don't. Know. Anyway, so you, you you might I don't know. It's it that's a it's something that I've I've come to deal with. I've listened back to the back catalog of stuff. There's so many things that I could be cancelled for. I have an album called Late Night Electric Watermelon, which is about 22 tracks of comedy that I wrote once I went from when mm. I left the Juice Pigs up until I think I put it out in 2011. And it's got a whole lot of music on it, and I, you know, it was really cheap, and it was done really cheaply, and we did it over a couple of days, and it's not gonna, it's not the most groundbreaking musical comedy album of all time, but there are a few gems on it that I'm really proud of. Mm. Um, but there, most of it is stuff. I listen to it now and thinking, oh, I use the word midget for one that in on a couple of tracks that would that could get me cancelled because you're not, you, you know, that's not a term. I want to say you're not allowed to say that anymore, but that's that's even that makes it sound like I'm being I I don't care I do, I just that at the time that's not that wasn't forefront in my mind. Mm. Uh, I do a song about Rahipnol, which came out of a, a show that I did with um, a, a, an ex-girlfriend of mine, and the audience. I said I jokingly said to the audience, "I'll sing as I'll, I can write a comedy song about anything." It was uh, defending something I'd said, and that and someone at the back, f as a joke, yelled out "Rahipnol," right? And the whole audience laughed at this because because that is basically challenging me <laughs> to make funny one of the most delicate 
topics. Yeah. But rehyp- yeah. rehypnol itself, as an object, as a thing, is uh, inoffensive, right? Mm. right? You know yes. what I mean. But what yes, it conjures, yes. the uh, the uh, what it conjures, the image it conjures is of a horrific situation, um, which I wouldn't wish on anybody. But I would had to take. I'm standing on stage. I've challenged them. Now they've challenged me. So I improvised a song in while I while I was doing it. Improvised a song where both parties in the scenario actually were liked Rahipnol, loved Rahipnol, like it was a kind of thing they wanted to take, and uh, and they enjoyed each other's company and I and as an alternative lifestyle I call it an alternative <laughs> lifestyle love story it was just a joke it really was just me sort of trying to I'm trying to get out of this really bad situation I put myself in and it became mm. funny to me and that's the history of that song and if and it's defense it, it, you can defend it in any number of ways but I could we completely understand if someone said that really hurt me that really hurts me you don't understand and i have had people say you don't understand what what that means and the my answer is no i really understand what that means which is why i wrote it and why it's funny to me and why why it might be funny to someone it is not making fun of victims mm. you know it is not yes. in in it, you know it is it is purely a comment on the it actually is a comment on on offensiveness and the fact that there's nothing in that song that's actually offensive. Yeah. Um, uh, how does all this um, this current environment? How does it affect you, like writing now or just going back into <coughs> comedy? Let's say looking at live comedy after all these lockdowns are over and stuff. Like, um, is that there kind of sitting on your shoulder, like uh, like whispering in your ear? Well, this is, we're going back to, this comes lovely background to our original topic or whatever. <laughs> and we don't really have topics, but we, but we were talking about caring about the audience and respecting them. So, yes, I mean, you know, you, I think it's wrong to stick to your guns and say, I'm not changing the way I think. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to change my attitude towards what comedy is because of some, you know, millennial and I think no, you have to listen to what people are doing, and and it's called the state of the art, and um, you have to accept that these are considerations. Now, if you want to take those that, if you want to attack that subject, um, <clears throat> Steve Hughes does it brilliantly. If you want to take on the subject of offensiveness and what it means, and uh, censorship and uh, canceling and all these things, and then you have to be very clever about it. And you have to be prepared for other some people to just not understand because some people have different levels of of uh, understanding and different levels of empathy for you as a performer, and then other people want you to be ruthless and have, you know, well they're kind of being touted as you know right wing thinkers um, or libertarians, you know, uh, and on what you on what's offensive. So you've got this really weird. Um, um, schism in the comedy industry where where you've got I'm trying to think something like um, Titania McGrath which uh, the the guy that wrote that you know he was writing it as he was writing it as a comment on woke behavior mm. and but people that were genuinely woke were uh, get hated <laughs> and but yeah. he, but the more that that happened the more it consolidated his audience which is people that hated the woke and then. I don't think that's why he started. I don't know him, Andrew Doyle, 
Um, but he's, you know, he's a young, I don't know how young, if he's young, but he's a young gay comic. He's, <clears throat> he now runs an, a, a night called Unleashed in, in um, which I've never done, in um, Bethnal Green. And people have said to me, you should do Unleashed. I'm like, well, I, it's not really, That's that puts me in a funny category because I, if I right. do if I do that show, I'm then saying I think that I agree with that yes, that you yes. should be saying do I'm whatever you want. With I this. should you should be Count Dankula and have your Nazi pug, which I I don't <laughs> I don't I don't really I don't think that's fun. I don't th- I didn't think it was funny. Yeah. I don't I don't think that he should go to prison or for it. But but there has to be some kind of. Uh, commonality in in our understanding of how f- what things can and can't be said in a public forum, you know. And I don't mean censorship. I just mean it needs to be open to discussion. I I I I need to accept that there are people who would be absolutely one hundred percent offended by it, misunderstand it, and not be able to look at other angles of the of the situation, of the of that particular situation. If you're using Count Dankula and his pug pug. Um, yeah, so I, I accept that it's a vast subject, and I'm sort of in the middle of it. I have, in in Canada, you do not use the term Eskimo. It would be, it's absolutely horrendous. It's like a, it's like the N word. If if, uh, if mm. uh, but the at the time that we wrote the song, and it was, we saw we were watching um. A TV show, an, an Australian nature show, an Australian program, where it was an Australian voiceover doing a thing, uh, a study of uh, a native Canadians of uh, Inuit who going off on on the on the, the a seal hunt for months at a time. Mm. Uh, you go out, you go off in pairs, and he was calling on the SBS, which is like you know the PBS of Australia. He was calling them Eskimos. That made us laugh. That made us like, oh my god, that's just. Like it's they're not even even like wasn't even you can understand why it hadn't no one had you know corrected it at that point so that made us laugh and then we started just laughing about um, our tour manager at the time uh, James is 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 gay and you know has been a friend of ours from from university days and we just thought it'd be really funny James would love that going off and being you know and then I and then we just following the connection. Wow, there you, you has to, there has to be um, you know some gay community in in your community. There's not that many of them. You might be the only gay in in that tribe. And then that really made us howl to think of the guys going. No, I'm not going. <laughs> I don't want to go with him. It's just. I mean, it's not. I don't see that as being an offense either to to the Inuit community or um, to hom- the homosexual uh, LGBT community. So LGBTQ community. So I. I don't, but you know, I can understand why someone that doesn't listen to it closely or doesn't know me or know the work might, on the surface, go that really offends me. So right. if you saw the right. words "the only gay Eskimo," you might go, "That's really offensive." Um, in the end, it, the song, I believe, the reason the song is uh, so has been so popular with comedy crowds. Um, and it was on Dr. Demento and has appeared and featured in all sorts of different places. And is we've just actually been asked to uh, put it into the British Library, uh, um, uh, special recordings of, of um, heritage recordings. It, wow. And the, re- the reason for that, I think, is because it actually is about deep loneliness and and being excluded. And it's about, it actually touches people from the LGBT community and 
people of Inuit heritage because there's an understanding and there's a, it's sort of like that's probably the loneliest place you could be. Mm. And that's what it's and, and in the end, we didn't sit down and go, let's write the loneliest song you could write. We wrote it with a dumb song with with ice ice puns, <laughs> you know, like. Right. But, yeah. but but we stumbled across something that actually touches people um, on a. Uh, on that level and i don't want to get too you know like well that's what we were trying to do we were completely accidental comedy comedy is lovely for that accidentally uh pointing out the foibles of of the the exist the human existence to not yeah. get, to not get too highfalutin about it but that that is really what comedy does it com- it makes you look at your makes you look at reality from from the most uh, obtuse angles yeah and and like the heart comes through really you know as in like starts what starts as like a funny idea funny song but then it actually it automatically has that that side to it you know um i I was going to ask you that at what point did you uh move to london uh from did you move uh straight from canada to london and did you come on your own or did you come with a band and yeah uh, and also like what was the what was the comedy scene like back then? Uh, well, the comedy scene in Britain was, it still is to a certain extent, but there was a, there was a period, they call it a boom period. Uh, but it was, I mean, it was, um, you know, up the creek and uh, the comedy store and the glee clubs were, uh, and jonglers only had one club. And um, it was, I mean, you knew every single comedian. It was Sean Hughes and Kevin Day and Michael Redmond, and mm. um, you know, it was uh, <clears throat> the stand. The stand was still brand new. Can you imagine the stand, which is now an yeah. established brand? It was just a brand new thing. I remember when it moved to the first to to where, to where the original one, the original Edinburgh one is from from the from the nightclub or wherever they were. <clears throat> so. Um, I mean, it was extraordinary. We were traveling all over the world. Uh, Australia, things were taking off there. There were some big TV shows. And um, I, I'd been doing comedy with the Juice Pigs for about 10 years at that point. And we were on development deals at Disney. We'd been on Mad TV on the Fox Network for a season and a half doing our songs. Um, you know, we were having meetings with, uh, with you know, Hollywood producers. We were at the same agents as Jim Carrey, blah, blah, blah. And my, uh, I was married to an Australian woman and my marriage kind of fell apart because I was never there. I was always somewhere else. And uh, at the time I was very upset by, you know, what had happened and in time I've come to realize that it was 50% my fault as well for just not being available so I moved to to run away from that situation in Toronto where we lived I I moved to Britain because I was born in Cumbernauld Scotland um, and so I have a British passport and I moved to London in uh, 1997-98 but we'd been coming back and forth since 1990 I did the right. Edinburgh Festival in 1990, I think it was. I've actually lost track of whether it was 90 or 91, but um, it's not unimportant, really. It's you know, so I had sort of things set up here, but the, about a month after uh, my my marriage completely bottomed bottomed out, um, the Corky the Juice Pigs fell apart, and um, 
which is a whole other story. And it was kind of acrimonious and it wasn't very fun. So within the space in 1996, I'd started doing my own solo shows. And that same, very same year, the whole, my whole life changed drastically. Wow. So I lost, wow. I lost all of this, all of the connections to Hollywood. I lost uh, my seven closest friends were all suddenly um, estranged from me and I moved to Britain. I got rid of everything that I had. I moved to Britain with a guitar, a bag of papers that had like, you know, sort of documents and one bag of clothes. And that mm. was it. And, wow. I, and I moved into, yeah, I moved into, I was sort of like in an attic flat, squat flat. And that was it. So, so that was going from, you know, we had, at the height of our Juice Pigs success, we had auditioned for Steven Spielberg. And then I went oh, back. Yeah. And so, so the comedy career I'm on now is, is like I, I, I second, I call it my second comedy career. I've had two comedy careers. And, yeah. and then I kind yeah. of rebuilt by 1998. I had sort of through my, my friend Lisa White, who's glorious talent and she, she you know, took great, great care to help me and, and I bounced back in 1998. Um, I won the Time Out Comedy Award, uh, the same with, along with Adam Bloom that year. So, and that was kind of the beginning where I realized I can probably do this by myself, maybe by myself, but I never really wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Okay. I, I, yeah. was, I was in the group, I was in the group for the sketches and for the acting and, you know, and the, the music was not something that I really had, uh, it's just come being put upon me so i you know what was it about the stand-up that kind of didn't appeal to you was it is it the like conversational like being being oneself let's say on stage or like the persona of like chatting to the audience like in a normal way is, is it something around that Cause no it's something i just I was, no i okay. just didn't i just didn't think i was very funny i just i'm not i'm not really i, I mean i, I you know, well, I don't, I don't, you've, you've caught me out on that. I don't say this very often, but I've never really wanted to be a stand-up comedian at all. Mm. And, and so I think there's a large part of me still doesn't, but I'm kind of stuck in a, in a lifestyle, um, a loop of like, this is what I do. This is what I do. And this is what I'm known for. Um, and, you know, I've, I've done okay. Do, and, you know, I have, I have a lifestyle. Um, but it's not what I actually, where I ever expected. When I was a teenager, teenage Phil Nickel would not have ever pegged me to grow up to be a stand-up comedian. And I just don't, I just don't, I see there's some, so many brilliantly funny, naturally funny human beings that I know through stand-up, and I don't feel like I'm one of them. Just a reminder, uh, patreon.com slash Emmett O'Malley. E-M-M-E-T-O-M-A-L-L-E-Y Go on there now, you'll get a few uh, bits and pieces I was going to say free bits, but they're not free, it's about a fiver But it's worth it uh, There's videos, there's songs, plenty of songs, all kinds of stuff Patreon.com slash Emmett O'Malley Get on there, good stuff Like, is there a part of you that also loves it like nothing else you know no well see that's a discussion because there's obviously a bit of me that loves the sound of my own voice right and and uh, uh as i suggested earlier in the podcast i did have i have 
you know, the way that the way I, the way I was brought up, as with everybody, has had a huge effect on the person I became. And not being able to speak or listen to, and being bullied and beaten up and stuff for so long, and being from a different country, and all the stuff that goes along with being an immigrant and everything like that, has given me a stubborn, very stubborn attitude. I'm, it could be that I'm just a stubborn person, but I'm also, I, you know, wanted to, had a dream of being, being a live stage performer and it might not be exactly what I was hoping to do. Like, you know, I was, to be really honest, I would love to be, I would love to have played some of the great Shakespearean roles on stage at the Globe or at the RSC, mm. and I, th I find that when I go and see those shows, I just think those these actors are phenomenal. And um, but you know, I've learned a lot of skills, and I really love comedy. For I love watching other people do it, and I just it's yeah, just it's a sort of um, it's 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 only it's allowed me to have a, a lifestyle, a sort of a bohemian kind of artistic. An art, an arts lifestyle, um, which is part of the reason I liked the thought of being an actor and the thought of working uh, uh, for theater companies and stuff. I do love art. I love, I love creating things, and I, I love other people that do it, and I love going to galleries, and I, I think it's vital. I think it's. I'm actually a really kind of hardcore when it comes to arts funding and uh and 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 trying to get more people to play instruments and more people to create art and not be so critical of of stuff and i don't i'm not a fan of critics and i'm not a fan of people that try to uh berate and make other people feel bad about some a piece of art being shit or you know you hear it all the time going the fuck this that album sucks i'm like well not no it doesn't it's great it's just not for you you know yeah. and yeah, and exactly. people people like people like um you know great great artists that inspire me to be more adventurous so i mean I, I i don't get me wrong if i'm invited to comedy festival i go and i love it and i have fun um and i love watching really great comics i just i always just i always i think this is probably true for a lot of comedians sometimes you just feel like a bit of a a bit of a ligger and you know i feel like i'm just getting i feel like i'm fool i've got away with it for this long and at any point it's going to all people are going to realize that uh that i'm just faking it and i and i know that you what you perceive and very kindly have expressed but and i appreciate that but um yeah i maybe the idea is not to focus so much on what people think and what people what people think about me and just get on with creating stuff and if i think something's funny at this point i've got enough of a track record to think maybe it's funny you know and, yeah. and put it out and with comedy it's lovely because you get an immediate response is it funny they laugh it's funny that's it this is really quite clear cut now whether it's clever or offensive or uh you know it needs work that's beyond that's not anyone's that's no one's business but the comedians. They right. laughed. They laughed. I repeat, ad finitum. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. Um, uh, maybe I'll be bold enough to ask, like, in terms of, um, you mentioned, like, Shakespearean acting and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, there is a... Would that be something that you would move towards? Um generally considering it's such a like as in that's something that seems to really resonate like a real passion 
It, well, it's it, I'm I feel like I've been gearing up f for it. I started a theater company. We're I think we're in almost our seventeenth year, believe it or not. What two thousand three? What yeah, so about seventeen years, with um, with uh, a, a young woman. Well, we're no longer young, but at the time uh, Maggie Inchley is her name, um, mm. and we met through friends of friends of friends going to see a play at the National Theatre and she was taking her MA in direction at Mount View uh, Theatre School and asked me to, if she if I had some time to be an actor in her class in in her project at the end of the year so sort of like a freebie and I hadn't really done any acting she I kind of were talking about acting and I was get, told her most people didn't realize that that was my background that I I trained trained as an actor and I had uh, done 12 Angry Men and people had seen me do some acting and said, oh, he's actually not, you know, it's just from being trained, I think. I have a little, few little tricks and skills and things. So I did, I did that and it went, I did a thing with her in Edinburgh and it went really well. So we just continued the, with the Comedian Theatre Company and, and putting on, putting comedians. I thought, well, this is something I want to do, and maybe I can help other comedians who want who've never done any acting or 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 have done acting, and there's no outlet for it. So I started putting mm. on uh, theater pieces and things, and and casting myself in good roles, and mm. and then also putting other people. Tony Tony Law played Killer Joe in um, in Tracy Letts' amazing play, and you know, throughout the years we've had. We've had, I've had, we've had um, new material nights, uh, itch a scratch events. We've had people like Ed Byrne, Jack Whitehall, Steve Frost, um, Helen Lederer. Um, uh, you know, Sarah Pascoe was a regular member of the company, and then on stage we've had Bridget Christie and Lionel Blair. Even you know, we've had. So I've had my. Uh, it keeps that's enough to keep me theatrical even today this afternoon uh well this pod when this podcast goes out it won't be but the afternoon we're recording this um i'm doing a play reading of a new play written by two stand-up comedians paul ricketts and steve driven it's a comic play based around the life of lizzie mcgee who was the woman who invented the board game monopoly only to have it stolen Brilliant. from her and it's a comic sort of biodrama Bio comedy, uh, and and we've got Nick Helm and Jen Brister and Tom Stade, Alison June Smith, uh, Ria Lena, and David Mills in the cast, and we're all just getting together to do a rehearsed reading. We're doing a rehearsed reading on Zoom for the public next week, and so we're rehearsing it. So I'm not in it. I'm just producing it. I'm helping. Well, I'm not helping. I'm the one putting it together with Maggie to help Steve and Paul write a play you know and i just it, it may it may come to fruition where we get to perform it on stage at some point i mean that is the goal that's awesome man no it's great so, to hear that no so, i'm really glad that like i'm really glad to hear that yeah. side of uh that side of your career you just know like I, going I don't, on and on i don't know sometimes you know I hear the tone of my voice sometimes and I get really strident about things. And I, it, it, when I listen to it back, I'll listen back to, to this podcast if I listen to it. And I'll go, oh, God, shut up, Phil. You're just, you sound really. But I think it's important to, to have that confidence. And I'm this, I'm this weird mix of like completely unconfident. Uh, and I, th I think I've psychologically learned to deal with that. 
by overcompensating, going, right, we're, we're going to do this today. <laughs> and, then, yes, and then I get yes. things done. And maybe I've, I've actually started thinking, I've been watching uh, Kanye West and, and the run up to into the elections last year. And I thought he's bipolar and he gets these rushes of, creativity and i thought maybe maybe that's maybe i have a symptoms of <laughs> of some <laughs> deeper condition that causes me to be like that i don't i do not know but i get waves of creativity where i go i have to get this done um and then 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 there's days where i can't i can't get out of bed yeah no i i i totally relate man and um i i don't know there's some kind of dance that happens um between the fear of like nothing happening and the uh, kind of having to do it all in one week <laughs> you know yeah. something like that comes up a lot you know for me but there's something about the doing the action i think that is just the thing as well because yes. um i i've had times where i do stuff for a while quite intensely and then i drop off for for quite a few months and and then I feed into all the self-doubt and the, the rest of it. I'm trying to learn at the moment to just just keep it going, you know, just just keep that action up because that does feed the. It's just the physical, actual reminder in reality. Oh, I am doing things, you know. I am growing with this. It is, it is evolving. It will you know? get better. Well, it's a skill. So this, it's um, sort of art. It, being this esoteric thing that's hard it, when you're young and and you you don't have you know you want to do something sometimes people are naturally gifted and they just come up with these amazing paintings or brilliant songs and uh, and they don't know how they've done it and then when they're asked to do it professionally it, it all falls apart because they don't know what it, it is they've done because they haven't had time to look at their own method and and find find their way around those things and then there's other if there's any young listeners the thing is to just keep repeating don't don't let anyone dent your confidence uh, um, don't let anything dent your confidence and don't be a hard critic on yourself you're going to face enough hard critics anyway so just but just keep the process going and so if you're playing songs just pick up the guitar and play every day and do it for the love of doing it which is going back to the same conversation we began with which is what the comedian was trying to tell you at the beginning his advice was trying to tell you keep doing it for you because you're that that's the person that has to be satisfied with it <clears throat> of course what I took uh, umbrage with is that it, sh it should be remembering that there, if you're doing it for you, but for but there is an audience, and that art isn't art if it sits in a room by itself. It's not. It has to be shared. I I, th I do believe that art will is coming under attack because it questions authority and it questions power, mm. and it does it in mm. a way. It does it in a way they can't close it down. So you can't look at a Jackson Pollock and say, well, we can't have that because there's nothing to not have. Uh, but by if you know, you know, the history and the background and the you look at the anger and the, you know, there's it's a symptom of what he felt was a cancerous society. I think I think mm. that's just I mean, what do I know? I'm not. But I, I, I think we need to be building people up. Less critics would be good. Um, but of course, it's it's part of the state of the art nature of the game you have to yes. you have to you have to play that game as well but as artists i when i hear artists being critical of other artists i don't have time for them yeah no i feel i feel the exact same way uh it's it's a real 
it's a it's a real turn off and at, at the same time like when when I'm trying to make something myself if I'm trying to work on like a song or um uh even just keep keep playing keep singing keep rehearsing all this kind of stuff um like it it's not going to help me in any sense to have somebody ripping it to shreds you know like is somebody who has no like actually has no real doesn't really affect my life in any sense outside of that it, it, it doesn't do anything for me you know no it's it, it's 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 and it often is coming from people who have never really gone through the experience of of doing that daily grind as well that we talked about like yeah. as in everything yeah. has to be intellectualized everything has to be kind of you know overthought about almost you know about someone else's work whereas the an artist is just someone who has to has to keep trying to put out what's in their heart let's mm -hmm. say and what's in their heads and their ideas and just put it into a form I that that resonates with people i guess and and if it does or not you know that's that's you know who knows but well, it it just doesn't help to have people pulling pulling you down at any point no i i always use an analogy for the people that i work with that uh, um, creativity is like a tap and you have the control of that tap and and the more the more that you write and the more that you express then the the you're turning that you're you are you are turning the tap on you're the one that if you sit down and go i'm going to play the guitar for an hour today it's two o'clock i'm going to play until three that's turning the tap on and the more you turn the tap on the bigger the 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 the, 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 the um the more that comes out and if you if critics t touch your hand and get force you to turn the tap down because you go, so I don't know what that's to, but, and then you turn the tap off, uh, you'll end up just turning it off completely. So the best thing to do is to open it up and get as much, the more creative you can be, the more creative you become, etc. And it feeds itself. And I think of our great musical artist like Prince, who would have surrounded himself with all other musicians, and he lived in a place where it was just musical instruments and had regular concerts. Him for you know he had a nightclub in his own in his uh, in his uh, uh, complex, and he would invite audiences to come and listen to him jam and play nightly. You know, and it was just a tap that he couldn't turn off. Now, whether that's because he was driven, um, whether it's you know who knows the mind of the of the person, uh, what of you know what what drove that and what where it comes from is beyond you know beyond me. But I do think that those that type of mentality, even if even if people even if you've only got a small audience of friends and family at the end of your life who have listened to your songs, it's still the songs have done something for you. And that tap has been on. So just keep that. I just like that. I just have an image of, of it being, you know, you have to keep that tap running. Yeah. Because if you turn yeah. it if you turn it off, it'll close itself off and it'll rust up and and Right. And I think that happens to a lot of people when they're young. You know, I think I'm a lot of artists and I think that it's a shame. It's in fact, it's not even a shame. It's disgusting that they don't have music programs. They'll have math programs, but not music programs. That's completely wrong to me. So I'm mm. sorry, whatever you think the, the, the conservatives or the, the, the capitalists that run our society who think that numbers are more important than music are wrong. Absolutely 100% wrong. They're, you, they're, you know, 
they'd rather have people go in any kind of creative space. Elon Musk is 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 rich because he's creative, not because he's good at numbers. Although he might be good at numbers, but as well. Yeah. But what I'm yeah. saying is he's got a creative mind and a creative energy, and I bet he's surrounded by people that sit down and come up with really great creative ideas and problem solving and their the methods of teaching people taking away i was very lucky and i went to a high school that had a, th a theater teacher who took me aside and, and had and we would put on plays and take them to um you know the sears drama festival all that stuff needs to be supported by the society because if it's a you know art will be the thing that solves a lot of social ills and I, you can call me crazy, you know, but I believe that wholeheartedly. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, me too. And it's it's like you know, the opposite of crazy for me. Like it's crazy the way things actually, like the way the attitudes towards creativity and art uh, are. And I I just think that one of the things that's really lacking is a lack of let's say space, like pr like the the prior like the prioritizing of space in people's lives where people can have an opportunity to um like this is like you mentioned like this is my hour to create this is my like like it's not instilled i think in society in people to honor this like just times where you're kind of sitting with yourself where you're allowing stuff to come in you're giving like like it's important to write this stuff down it's important to um, work on ideas that aren't um, that can't be predicted or they can't be controlled you know yeah um, and, and th there's the no emphasis on that at all no you, if you I mean it's it gets into a really kind of deep weird place but you know what what ancient man was doing when they were drawing on walls and was was vital to the survival of the tribe it wasn't just they weren't just going. Hey, look, we're going to draw some cartoons on the walls. Hey, kids, look. They were, they were teaching their children how to hunt and what, uh, telling stories to the people that, and in the, in the cave of what had happened and putting their hands on the walls. They weren't putting their hands on the walls, thinking in two thousand years people are going to look at this and remember us. They were doing it then, probably the same way that we put marks on the walls to measure the heights of children as they grow up. So just see that. Look next year, you put your hand up there. Go look, your hand's grown. And and simple. It's really basic human need to express yourself artistically it's what sets us aside from other animals who don't create so why wouldn't we be why wouldn't we be focused on on uh, experimenting and discovering and allowing people to discover why that we have that need and letting it happen it, it seems insane that you're that they would be thinking it's just some kind of weird thing that you know people play the guitar it's like that's it's not just that's it's a, a, an understanding of the of of science and, and i you know i mean i'm getting kind of deeply philosophical about it but i genuinely believe it's a mistake not to teach every single child to play some form of instrument some may be better than others but you know as a musician and i know as a musician the number of times where it's been a a bomb to my aching heart so you would yeah. <clears throat> if that's true on a personal level what would it mean on a societal level 
Yeah. That that's that that's just the theory that but I mean, you know, I I probably your this podcast is probably going out to other artists and stuff, so people go, "Well, that's just obvious and they agree." But I think it's something that we need to constantly fight for because as art has taught us, the powerful and power-hungry people don't want us to learn about ourselves because we they don't want us to have our individual uh, minds doesn't, yeah. doesn't, doesn't yeah, work definitely. They, they can't enslave us if, if we're thinking for ourselves artistically yeah and it is a healing thing as well for sure like I remember growing up like as a teenager when I started writing songs um, I remember that was like like the greatest therapeutic thing for me at the time just doing that like like also this process by which I could see oh I've just made something as well as been able to say how I feel in this moment and express it like I've done something that I I really value and that came from within me you know and like I often thought like this came up in a in a, in a previous episode of the podcast as well I often thought about this idea if there was like hypothetically some kind of like uh, uh, extraterrestrial kind of being looking down over humanity and they saw this like music festival and they saw all these people just gathering in this kind of uh, this just mass of like people around these boxes that are creating vibrations you know <laughs> like yeah. it's literally a bunch of people going to get like healed from the stress of their life because that's we call it music we call it festivals we call it like entertainment we go but really we're we're we're, we're getting something very deeply important to who we are as human beings from all that well the logical <coughs> the logical extension of that analogy <coughs> would be that any extraterrestrial that's in in uh, capable of um of uh recognizing us as as a life as a life form as they would be would also understand basic physics and chemistry and science and therefore would also have harmony the exact same harmony because those those sound waves and harmonies exist in nature without right. human beings so yeah. that they are quantifiable to any life any any other uh, extraterrestrial life would quantify it as as also we you know we will discover with colors because we all know we know that colors is 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 unique to uh not unique to human beings but also is something that's quantifiable. <clears throat> Therefore, as is language, as is communication, so that extraterrestrial probably would have its own music. Will they will have their own music? They will have their own ways of putting those um, those modes together. Now, whether they are in the modes that we understand, we don't. We do not know. And that's the beauty of it. It's almost getting in a um, <laughs> a Star Trekky type way. The weird kind of. <laughs> Music, you know, or or Go straight I, down this. Uh, I always love. Yes, I always, <laughs> I always loved um, the soundtrack to um, uh, to Clockwork Orange because it was a trying to predict what the music of the future. My I favorite love that. one. I my love favorite. It my too. favorite one was I want to marry a light housekeeper and keep me in a job all day, which she just <laughs> was like is such a retro. It's it's a perfect prediction of what human beings do. Anyway, back to the point. Um, <laughs> m music, music that music exists without us. So, <clears throat> if my theory is correct that that thing that humanizes us <clears throat> excuse me that thing that humanizes us will also be the thing that endears us to alien life forms um war and fighting and nuclear weapons will not 
it'll make them fear us because it will they will also understand the <clears throat> the same laws of physics and know that it's a destructive force so the thing that's going to save us would be the thing that brings us joy in life and the thing that's going to destroy us is the thing that brings fire and and hate and so any extraterrestrial will recognize that and we will be judged as a as a species and we were judged as a, as a race, the human race, on whether we can get to grips with the, the former, which is our ability to express our, our connection to nature, or the latter, our uh, ability to destroy it. So yes. that, I mean, this is ba very basic, but <clears throat> if you don't believe those two things, if you go, if you, or if you can't get your head around and go, oh, fuck that, who the fuck, the fuck off. That's where that's where comedians that's where comedians come in and go no ha you're wrong yeah. idiots yeah. here we go here let me let me uh, try and uh, connect you to that deep human emotion that makes you want joy and the thing that'll you know if on, at a spur of a moment yeah I always think a man's character is is uh, is is decided at the spur of the moment the challenge and I've never really had to face it. But if you see someone drowning in a in a in a the ocean, it's are you do you jump in and save them or do you stand on the shore and wish you had for the rest of your life? That's that's kind of what makes you. And I think we're at a point. It always feels like in my life that it's been coming to this. We're at a point in in human existence where we have to decide: Are we going to try and jump in and save ourselves, or are we just going to stand there and watch it watch ourselves drown? How about, oh my god, that was fucking very profound. Put that was that, beautiful, put, man. Put that, that on I love my, it. Put that I on love my it. grave. <laughs> put that, oh, my epitaph. I'll never have to do another podcast yeah. again. Perfect. Don and, <laughs> Done. Don and, uh, Done. Don and Dust. Thanks, it, guys. Man. Thanks um, for the career. <laughs> yeah. Man, well, uh, look, anyway, this, I do, this is an arts podcast, right? So oh, yeah, like, man. This is just, whatever feel, comes up, and, and uh, we're both, like we, we both do what we do. So, this is perfect, man. Absolutely. There's no, there's no, uh, there's no rules really on this. So, uh, I know, just, but I thought maybe you wanted me on here for like the comedy guy podcast. But, like man, I said, I've never really thought of myself as being that. that I, I, I like all, all of, all of, uh, all of what you are and who you are, and it's perfect, man. It's perfect. Yeah, and, right. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to wrap it up in a minute, but I just wanted to before I, before we do that, uh, just wanted to mention briefly as well. Um, everybody's talking about Jamie. So you were uh, in that musical. Was that like? Was that kind of pulled um, with the lockdowns and stuff, or like? Are is is that uh, going to be coming on again when we're released into the world? Well, they they have just announced that the show is going up on sale again. So I'm not, I'm not sure the exact date. I looked online. It looks like they're selling tickets from April 1st, although I'm not sure. That when I did a, a few, no, two nights of it in December, and then the lockdown happened again. So we were rehearsed and ready to reopen. Uh, but my contract was finished in January. So it will it'll be on sale. It's a fantastic musical uh, a true story about a boy called Jamie New, but Jamie, his name, real name is Jamie Campbell, who's this boy from the northeast of England who uh, wanted to go to the prom dressed as a, uh, in a dress, basically, as a drag queen or hmm. in a dress. So that's the musical. It's on at the Apollo Theatre, and um, you definitely go and check it out. It's a pop musical written by Dan Gillespie Sells and Tom McRae, and it's funny, and it's, it's, um, it's a great night out. 
fantastic yeah. so so well, that i can't be, wait that to see it i can't yeah. wait to see you in it man <clears throat> i can't wait to see you back on stage in general and just uh yeah, yeah. just get yeah. back into the swing of things you know sure i play i play hugo battersby who's like a washed up drag queen who lives in sheffield um <laughs> it's but not Sh- the accent it's not shylock what you mean <laughs> like, i'll try well, it's been a while since i've done me like sheffield accent but uh, it's all right, you know it's all right i got away with it I don't, I, I don't think if you were from Sheffield, you go, where, where are you from? I go, well, I spent about a, a couple of years in, in Toronto. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was in Toronto for a couple yeah. of years, Aaron, and, I, yeah. and I was in Glasgow. I, <laughs> I went, I went yeah. to uni in Glasgow. So. Yeah. Or you just, you just have the best performance of your life and you come out into the lobby afterwards and this really angry Sheffield guy is standing there <laughs> just confronting you about, like, put all, all his... Um, all his uh, anger in his life into that moment of like he got the accent uh, not exactly <laughs> perfect the way like my, my granddad did it or whatever yes but you know the, what, the thing that i've learned about about <laughs> Brit- british accents right is that they is that there are so many different ones that you mm. i could easily say i know i'm from are you where are you from you're from parsons cross so i'm not from i'm just outside parsons cross in newbury and he'll be like, oh, no, actually, Newbury's in, that's the wrong part of the country. Anyway, but, get, <laughs> but, but you know, if you move from street to street, in some of these places, the accent changes from street to street. Like, you'll know the difference between a North Dublin accent and a, and a Swords accent, you know? Like, so yeah, it's, yeah. The same, it's the same in the UK. So, so I can easily cover it up by saying, oh, that's how we sound on our street. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, man. That's just how we I sound, mate. I love it, man. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to say, like, it's such a pleasure to talk to you, oh, as thanks, always. Sam, and such a pleasure to have you on here. And thanks so much for doing it. Oh, my and God. Well, I'm just so humbled for having you, like, on <laughs> yeah. your podcast. I mean, it's just really amazing that you could have me. No, actually, well, no, I, I genuinely mean I hope it goes really well. I hope um, people enjoyed this uh, weird uh transient discussion (laughs) you know i don't really know i don't really know what people will take away from that and i can't remember what i said so that's probably a good thing great talking to phil on the show it was lovely to hear some insight into his life and his work and all the rest so thanks phil for being here thanks for doing it folks check out everybody's talking about jamie go to see phil on stage in the west end when that all comes back Okay, thanks for listening to Resonating with Emmett O'Malley. It's been a pleasure, and I will talk to you next Tuesday.